Welcome to the Surge Strength Podcast, powered by Ritter Sports Performance. This podcast is dedicated to helping swim coaches and swimmers learn how to properly implement dry land and strength training programs that result in moving better, reducing injuries, and swimming faster. Let's join your host, Chris Ritter. Podcast, everyone. Hope you're doing well. We're continuing to have more and more coaches enroll into the Surge Strength Academy, whether that's coaches taking advantage of the Dryland 101 courses or those coaches and even others too. I could tell there's some personal trainers, physical therapists, uh, people of that nature are signing up to become Surge Strength Dryland certified. And I wanted to start off the podcast. We had one question come in from Paul, who's a coach. Uh, going through the certification right now, he had a really good question. And I felt like, you know, I could just email him back and he could get the answer or I could answer all of you on the podcast because I think it's a good thing to think about. And I'm glad Paul is thinking in these terms. So the question that he sent me was, when doing single leg or single arm exercises, does the weaker side determine rep and duration and load? For example, left leg can do four single leg squats, but right can only do one to two. How is the best way to program to achieve balance? That's great that Paul is thinking about that. I can tell he's going through the curriculum here, and then I'll finish off the question, then I'll answer it. I know right leg needs a regression with a slower uh, descent. Should I focus on time and retention more than load or rep? So great question, Paul. Already, I know you're on the right track because you're thinking in these terms. And especially when you're doing single leg, single arm exercises, even a chest press, just doing one arm at a time, you're going to see some differences as opposed to if you were doing both dumbbells at the same time, or or especially like a barbell where both arms are really being able to play off each other. So let's break this down a little bit more for the single leg squat. Again, this is not unusual for a lot of athletes, especially when you're starting off doing single leg squats or even like an RFE rear foot elevated squat where one leg is going to be stronger than the other. So number one, if you know that there is a weaker side or if when you do the assessment and testing, you see that there is uh, one side isn't as well balanced, like the athletes losing balance more on that side, whichever side is weaker or maybe not as balanced, I always start with that side first, number one. So If the right leg can only do one to two and the left leg can do four, I'm doing the right leg first. Let's say that the prescription is for four reps. Left leg can do four reps, like you said, but the right leg is only able to do one or two. What I would do is, all right, with the right leg, we try to do one or two reps, then go to the left leg, then come back to the right leg and go one or two more reps to hopefully then get to four total reps. So That's the first thing I would try is if they can't do it in a row, especially when it's just body weight, because that's actually the advantage of having weights is you're able to change that resistance and scale to where the athlete is. So it's actually harder sometimes to program just for body weight because it's a lot harder to scale. You end up only being able to scale by changing angles and things of that nature. So I try to go two reps with the right leg because he said they can do one to two. So try to get two then go four reps with the single leg and then I'd come back to the right leg and try to, even if I just sneak out one, just doing that even a few training sessions, a few weeks at most in a row, you're going to get that. The other thing you could do 
is if you're only able to do two reps, you could just try to slow it down and have more time and attention. The downside of that is because that leg is so weak, you might not even be able to get through one rep. Like one, one to two reps, you're not having a lot to play with. So I would actually not go down the road of trying more time and attention. I would just try to give it more rest and go back again. So right leg, left leg, right leg. Because if you if they can only do one to two reps and now you try to slow that ten or the, the time under tension down, make it, you know, two seconds down, one second hold at the bottom, two seconds up. I mean, that's that's gonna be longer than what it normally takes them to do two normal length reps. So I'm not sure that extending time under tension is the best for this situation in particular. But Paul, again, excellent that you're already thinking in these terms and not just okay, reps and load is the only variable I could change. There's a lot of other variables that we can do. So I just wanted to answer that on the podcast. I thought it was a really great question by Paul, who again is going through the Surge Strength Dryland Certification. Make sure you check it out. If you are not in there already, we have a ton of coaches worldwide going through it. We're looking at the first group being able to be certified in early September. So in just a few weeks, I'm excited for those coaches out there. They're going to get the SSDC behind their names. It's going to be pretty cool. Inside the Surge Strength Academy. Swim and dry land training throughout the decades is what I'm going to be covering now. Back in the 60s and 70s, it really was about how much work could you do, both in the pool and that carried over to land too, if they even did dry land. A lot of times back then, it was thought of, of dry land was actually taking away from time in the pool and that it wasn't even close to equal. Again, I'm not saying that all you need to do is go to the gym and you're gonna become an amazing swimmer and never swim, of course not. You're a swimmer, you need to spend the majority of your time in the pool, but this was to the extreme other end in that they thought 99% of the time should be spent in the pool and maybe 1% on land. And if it was on land, it was usually in the same vein of the stuff they were doing in the pool endurance, repetition, circuits, more, 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 faster, harder, and just feeling out of breath, I think generally describes that decade in time. When it comes to dryland, it mimicked the training a lot. In the 80s and 90s, you see quote unquote lower yardage start to show up a little bit. Some were still going after the big time yardage, but then there were others that were really dropping it down and focusing more on intensity. And I think in this era, you start to see a little bit more of dry land training. I remember one of the uh, elite coaches that I first had the opportunity to work with, Richard Quick, the late Richard Quick at Stanford, he started to implement this pretty early on and was one of kind of the pioneering coaches when it came to starting to put at least some type of structured dry land program and more importantly, valuing it and understand this is actually a part of the program, not just something that's taking away from pool time. So I think around this decade, you start to see a little bit of a shift from the 60s and 70s where it really is more part of the program and it's more valued. Again, this is pretty broad general statements I'm making. I'm sure there are some programs went one way or the other. But then as we enter the 2000s, I think there's a lot of mix of training philosophies out both in the water and on land. And you're seeing more dry land components. You're seeing more cross training or other activities that are doing on land to supplement what they're doing in the water. And I just have to give Shot Tom Dolan there, my favorite swimmer of all time, had to put him in there in the 2000s. Of course, he went to the 96 Olympics as well, but had to make sure he got in there. But again, 2000s, lots of different directions. Some were still very 
yardage focus, some were more intensity, some were kind of in the middle, and it kind of went the same way with Dryland too. It was all across the board, but I think overall, you were seeing at least a raise of awareness of it that came from the 80s and 90s where it became more part of some really successful programs. In the 2000s, I think that even increased where more and more programs are saying, yeah, this is a dedicated part of our program. Dryland is important. It's not just something we do. It's not just a filler. Fast forward to 2010s there. I had just finished up working with one of the biggest clubs in the nation. And I was actually one of the few swim coaches that had certification when it came to strength and conditioning. Luckily, we can't say that's the case now. There are a lot more swim coaches out there that have strength and conditioning certifications, which is great. And honestly, it was one of the driving factors for us to start the Surge Strength Dryland certification is to give swim coaches the tools to how do we do dryland the right way. But I had finished up of just working on a complete curriculum from eight to 18 in this club and making sure that we had levels for every age group and how you progress them over time. And again, doing this back in the early, early 2000s, almost I think 2008, 2009, a lot of it too, one of the few clubs that was really doing this kind of stuff and that even had a coach on staff that had this certification. But thankfully, that's not the case now. A lot has even changed in the last 10 years. So it's kind of funny to look back and think about how much of a unicorn that idea was of a swim coach having strength and conditioning certifications and even having a program-wide curriculum just for dry land, let alone, you know, some coaches and programs don't even have a curriculum for what they're doing in the water, let alone dry land. So that was a unique thing. But luckily, I feel like that is changing. And I think the surge strength dry land certification is going to help that even more formalize that process as well. But one of the biggest striking differences I think you can make is putting these two pictures here of Michael Phelps together. The first Olympics he made and his last. And obviously his coach, Bob Bowman, and strength conditioning coach, trainer, athletic trainer at the time, Keenan Robinson, who's now working with USA Swimming, they did a masterful job of how to pair swim training and dryland training. And I think it definitely helped him, right? It's not that you could say Phelps wouldn't have had the success if he didn't have that dryland. Who knows what to say? But I am sure that both his coaches and he would say that it definitely helped him and was a great factor, especially how they were able to complement each other. You think about the intensity that he was doing in the pool, all the yardage, all the volume, but they still managed to pair the dryland with that. And so that goes to show you, it doesn't matter what type of program you're running, whether you're still stuck in the 60s and 70s and doing millions of yards or you're ultra short distance and just going, you know, as little as possible, maybe 1,000, 1,500 every workout. What you do in the water, that type of program, it doesn't matter as long as you complement the dryland with whatever program you're doing. We're going to get into that later on, but it doesn't matter as long as it's complementing it. So it's not that, oh, you can't do dryland with a high yardage program or you can't do dryland with a short, you know, intense program. It's all about complementing it together and putting the pieces. And I think Phelps is obviously one of the greatest examples of that. His body changed from 2000 to 2016 and the dedication that it took, but also the planning and coaching it out there. And now I think more than ever, you can say, especially, you know, with the ISL, coming out, you just see the professional athletes more and more on the stage and you realize, wow, 
the cream of the crop, they're amazing looking athletes. And we go back to the 60s and 70s, looking behind the blocks there, I don't think a lot of swimmers would have stood out as like the world's best athlete, but now you go to a, an elite level swim meet at the Olympics or the ISL or something of that nature, you're gonna see athletes, world-class athletes standing behind the blocks. And if the pool wasn't there, you might not be able to guess what sport they're in. It's also because more at the club, collegiate, and even professional level, resources are getting put into the dryland. So again, it's only building from where I think that arc really started in the 80s and the 90s there to now, it's really an integral part of a club's program. A lot of clubs even, like at the at the club level with USA Swimming Grants for the gold, silver, and bronze level, a lot of those clubs are putting those resources just to dryland because they know, hey, we need to address this. It's not about what we're just doing in the pool. And the elite athletes are showing that and all the way down to the little guys because overall, the times in swimming are just getting faster and that's not gonna stop. So the only way to achieve those new cuts, those new standards is you need to have better athletes that then turn in to faster swimmers in the water. And the elite are showing that. Overall though, I don't want this to be uh, poo-pooing on swimming about, hey, get it together already. Like, uh, you know, at least I feel present day, we're in a much better place, obviously than 20, 30 years ago with dryland. But I don't wanna come across negative too, because honestly, swimming is just like any other sport. They're usually behind the curb when it comes to strength and conditioning. I think one of the greatest athletes of all time, Bo Jackson, famously said, hey, I don't lift weights, you know? And that just still boggles my mind. Like think of how much even better he probably could have been because Bo Jacksons aren't walking in your door every day. But he was an incredible athlete without doing the strength and conditioning and having a program. And I think about one of the quotes, I don't even remember when it was, and it wasn't even about him in particular, but just watching a baseball game as a kid, I remember hearing the announcer saying, yeah, you know, they really didn't want him to lift weights because when he goes up to reach for that fly ball, he's just gonna be super stiff. And that's just, that's laughable now because if you're doing the right program, if you're working on your ratios, your periodization, the movements, all the pieces we're gonna teach you in the surge strength structure, you don't have to worry about stuff like that. Like that's just, it's just laughable that a baseball player lifting weights is not gonna be able to lift their arm overhead to catch a foul ball. And so it's not just swimming that's kind of missed the boat on strength and conditioning. I think pretty much every sport, maybe track and field is the only exception because it's so closely tied to strength and conditioning, but every sport is always a little bit behind the curb when it comes to adopting the cutting edge principles or even sometimes the basic foundations of strength and conditioning. So that's what we're gonna provide you here in the coming topics as well. Dryland Talk. On this episode's Dryland Talk, it's a throwback to a previous Swim Coaches based podcast when I had Coach Chris Fonts on. He's the head coach at Lewis and Clark College out in Portland, Oregon. I think second only to Stanford's campus. It's probably one of the most beautiful campuses I've been on, and it was awesome to be able to go there on a regular basis for a few years and help Chris specifically with the swimmers there in the weight room doing their dryland program. So that's what we end up kind of talking about a little bit. And it was actually kind of cool while I was at the college helping out the swimmers, other sport coaches would say, oh yeah, hey, I see you're getting some results. And they would end up talking to Chris. And by the end, I was working with half the teams at the college there, but they saw the work the swimmers were putting in and the swimmers saw the results in the pool that they were getting because they were getting stronger in the weight room in the right way that actually helped their swimming performance. So it was an awesome experience being able to be a part 
of that Lewis and Clark program with the Pioneers. So let's jump into this conversation I had with Chris. You know, as far as out of the water, certainly always had a strength program or a strength component. Let's call it a strength component. And we did stuff in the weight room uh, when I got here, and it was pretty general, I think, and not uh, not always super well reasoned. And in part, that was you know a, a limited background. I think you know, in, in anybody we had here to to help program that, and in part, it's it's another thing. If you're a if you're a head coach and you want great workouts in the pool, and you need the buses to show up, and you need recruiting to keep happening, cause that's critical. Um, the strength thing is probably going to seem secondary in some regards. And so we did dry land, and we did tubing and med balls, and we did stuff I'd call it in the weight room, uh, and. You know, I'm, I'm working my way around to this, but you know, this is like five seasons ago. We, you and I had the privilege of connecting, and you know, we I think really keyed in swimming-wise on a lot of the same both background experiences from our own swimming, but then kind of changing perspectives and learning and, and education of a swim coach. And so, you know, we I think we we met largely eye to eye on stuff like that. And you're a strength coach. And so to get you on our staff, I, I was, after a few conversations, pretty willing to just let you run with what was happening in the weight room. And, you know, we obviously we talked about goals and so on, but, you know, I ho- hopefully you feel like, and I think you said this at the time, you had pretty good license to, to run with a college team for a whole season and, and do what you wanted in the weight room. And I think that you know, that was a real transition point, you know, for, for me as a coach, seeing what that could be if there was someone both extremely knowledgeable and invested in that particular component above the other components as far as your time focus. And so to, to extricate myself from putting together sets and reps in the weight room and to see what it, you know what the kids were doing as far as just the complexity and the education side and also the uh, you know, the, the results, which was awesome. And we, we talk to our kids about this nowadays too. You know, the weight room is, is a little different environment because you can, you can kind of see more consistent day-to-day results than you sometimes can mm-hmm. in swimming. If we're trying to, if we're trying to peak twice a season uh, to, to swim really fast, uh, but the weights tend to be a little more, a little more gradual, you know, you can, you can bump things up five to 10 pounds here and there, and you can see that week to week. And so that's fun. Uh, I would say when, when you started working with our kids, we saw, you know, the, the baseline strength levels really start to go up, um, which was awesome. And, you know, it's, it's strength that you can apply to the water and increase power, but there was also and this is still something I think is critical is really almost two sides of the strength training coin. We've got the, that basic being stronger, flying force in the water, going faster, but we've also got the, um, the, just, just the body, I guess, healthfulness, creating a person who is a healthy athlete and functionally strong and reinforcing the, the back and the joints that we put a lot of strain on and having, you know, the right mobility, but also the right, um, I think of the right word, but, you know, thinking about the scapula and stabilizing, stabilizing what we're doing in the back and all the things that 
you know, that we want to firm up and to solidify so that we're not getting those shoulder problems and the things that you, know, you do run into from, from taking a whole lot of arm strokes in a swimming environment. And, um, you know, so, so both of those sides to the coin are critical and, and it was pretty cool uh, seeing both of the games that our kids made and I would say the buy-in, which mm-hmm. was, you know, when, when you can see people doing things on their own and coming in in the off season and asking for more and eating up what they're doing in the weight room, you know, partly, partly it's a change from the, the swimming day-to-day environment, but partly I think they could see the, they could see the results and what it was doing for them both, you know, on, on a very general, like physique wise, but also on how it was impacting their swimming and how they felt about themselves and realizing, you know, some of our kids, come in ready to get after in the weight room. Some of them, I think, discovered that, you know, that, that they are land-based athletes, mm-hmm. even if you've been, you've had it preached into you that swimmers aren't coordinated or swimmers aren't this, or they're not that. And I don't really buy into, <laughs> I think our team knows this. I don't believe in absolutist statements and I don't believe in self-limiting <laughs> statements or talk that, it isn't going to benefit you. And so, uh, but it's fun to see their eyes open through the process, not through me saying anything about swimmers as land-based athletes or not. But, you know, we, we had a woman who was, I want to say she was here when you got here and came into college. We talked about this after her last season, came into college able to do zero pull-up. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, which is not, <laughs> unu- not unusual. Right. Yeah. And you, you know what I'm talking yeah. about. It's not unusual for, for a woman or a man, to be honest, depending on their background, to not be able to do a pull-up when they're 18. Um, and she graduated able to do 19 pull-ups. And she was she was an extremely hard worker, but you would not say, like, of exceptional background physiologically. She was a normal person and a normal you know, normally built young woman, and she just kind of put the progressive day-to-day, week-to-week, and the off-season kind of focus into strength training that was offered to her, and she went from zero to 19 pull-ups, and 19 is a lot. Yeah. You know, there are, You think that helped her swimming? <laughs> there are people who can... I, I think it did, because she, she came in as a, a high school-only swimmer with a pretty limited background, and she graduated as a as a you know multiple school record holder on relays you know from from dropping just tremendous amounts of time over those over those four seasons in a pretty incremental way and it was holistic it wasn't just the strength training right. it, was, it was swimming in the summer and it was showing up every day and being you know really motivated and 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 those things led to somebody who came in with not much background and, and not a lot of strength or experience or speed going very fast and being a team captain and excelling academically, you know, and it's, it's, it's the whole, whole package and what we're trying to, you know, try to put people in the position to make the most of all of these opportunities they have in, in approximately four years you know, on our campus. And I think that, you know, that strength piece was huge and it's something that, you know, for the kids who got a couple years of that with you, it's something they definitely held on to. And they, you see it when they're in the weight room in the spring, which is effectively the off season, or they're doing it over the summer. Um, and it's pretty cool. You know, that, so that's, 
I guess I guess that's what I'd say about that. It's it's critical, and, and or it became critical to what we're doing uh, when we're trying to swim fast and be healthy. Yeah, and that all circles back to what we first started talking about about you helping to foster an environment where they come in and they start to own it and want it, because then that translates to them doing you know, the weight workout at different times a day, if, if they have a class conflict or, or something, you know, cause inevitably stuff comes up when they're in school. Right. And so, and I could see that too, throughout the years working with your team is um, I was impressed with, you know, and not everybody's perfect. We know that, but the majority of the kids are like, Oh, Hey Chris, what did we do today? I need to get it in another time. Or then, especially when we implemented, you know, here, here's the off season lifting for you guys, you know, so that you don't come into school totally out of shape and a good amount of them did something, you know, better than nothing. Right. But, and some of them did it every single day and you could tell when they came back, but all of these other things you add in, right. The strength training and the certain ways you're going to swim in the water that really isn't going to get to the core of, are they going to own it? And are they going to do it on their own, whether you're looking or not? Exactly. Exactly. The, both the, the self-discipline and the, that we're trying to develop and the opportunity. And that's, that's what I say a lot to people, particularly our, our recruiting classes and their parents, is that we, we can't make people do very much, but we can provide a lot of opportunities and, and, you know, and a lot of resources and data to, to support why we're doing it. But if, you know, the, the more opportunities available, the more people are going to seize them, take advantage of it, and you know, everybody to greater or lesser degree, but certainly you know, putting a lot of things out there and that would include, you know, off season strength and conditioning programs and willingness to send people workouts tailored to their background or their availability in the middle of summer when they have internships or jobs or, or other things. And, you know, the, again, you know, the more opportunities you can provide, the more they will take advantage of them. And that it definitely I think falls under that. Have you joined the Surge Strength Academy yet? It's now free to enroll in the Surge Strength Academy and raise your dryland IQ. Visit surge-strength.com to learn more and enroll today. That's surge-strength.com to enroll in the Surge Strength Academy. The goal of Surge Strength is simple. Build better athletes to generate faster swimmers.